0: I'm Krista Tippett. Today, The Ethics of Eating with author Barbara Kingsolver. In her book, Animal Vegetable Miracle, she describes an adventure her family undertook to spend one year eating primarily what they could grow or raise themselves. Barbara Kingsolver turned her life towards questions many of us are asking. How can my family's daily routines really affect climate change? What would we need to sacrifice in order to do what is right? And what
1: might we gain? I think what surprised me the most is that we didn't really miss anything. We went into it probably thinking too much about what we weren't not going to be able to have. But when we changed our thinking and started every meal with the question, what do we have? What's in season? What do we have plenty of? It became really a long exercise in gratitude. This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us.
2: Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org.
0: I'm Krista Tippett. This hour, Barbara Kingsolver reflects on the longings and lessons of a year she and her family spent eating only what they could grow or raise themselves. Her book about that experience, Animal Vegetable Miracle, has since become a staple in our cultural reappraisal of the ethics of eating. I spoke with her after its 2007 publication to explore her conviction that we can all find greater pleasure and influence the grand environmental crises of our time through our families' food lives. From American Public Media, this is Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, the ethics of eating. Barbara Kingsolver is the author of celebrated works of fiction and nonfiction, which mingle an artistry with words, training in evolutionary biology, and a love of the natural world. The Bean Trees, High Tide in Tucson, Animal Dreams, and The Poisonwood Bible, one of my favorite books, Kingsolver's epic 1998 novel set in post colonial Africa. Animal Vegetable Miracle was her first full-length nonfiction narrative, and she co-wrote it with her husband and her older daughter. The book opens on a May day in Arizona, where Kingsolver had spent half her life and her children the whole of theirs. But after three years of successive droughts, she writes, while people elsewhere debated how seriously they should take global warming, she felt she was staring it in the face. Away went our little family, King Kingsolver writes, like rats leaping off a burning ship. They drove across the country and moved into a farm in southern Appalachia where they'd long spent their summers and on land that could feed them, as Kingsolver tells it, chapter after chapter, month by month. They embarked on an odyssey of planning, planting, cooking, storing, freezing, and harvesting both plants and animals. Barbara Kingsolver explored her newfound aspiration to sustainable eating more as a citizen and mother than as a wordsmith and scientist. She asked questions many of us ask— Where does my food come from? Is it really nourishing? And what is the environmental cost of my choices? I wondered as we began to speak whether a spiritual sensibility has formed Barbara Kingsolver's life and her writing.
1: I would say that I was raised with very strong spiritual values. um, And that means as opposed to material values, understand that spiritual matters are always more important than material things, um, as long as you have enough to eat. Uh, when you right. don't, <laughs> the material things matter more than anything, right, I guess. Right. But but we did. And I was raised in a rural place where a kind of a community standard of giving and being responsible to one's neighbors was really the most important thing. Hmm. And it seems to me that Every book I write really returns to that. Um, the question of how an individual um, can be oneself and still remain um, conscious of one's debt to the community. Hmm. I am intrigued uh, in this context of your.
0: Love and knowledge of the natural world. You became an, you studied evolutionary biology. Um, you did spend two years in Africa when you it, were a girl. It was
1: a, a bit less than that. Yeah. Okay. I, I always say I went to Africa instead of second grade. <laughs> okay.
0: And I, okay, well, let me just, you know, let's say for example, um, I interviewed Wangari Matai, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, who is a great Kenyan environmentalist. Uh-huh. And she talked to me about drought and encroaching desert. And I, I think that uh, those very dramatic manifestations of whatever's happening to climate <laughs> in our time, uh, we think of as, as happening in a place like Africa. But you, in fact, the story you tell in your new book begins as you are leaving uh, the American desert <laughs> of Tucson, yeah, in
1: Tucson, Arizona, and,
0: and in fact, what we think of as a very successful American city.
1: It's true. People are m- moving to the Sun Belt in droves, but... Um I was becoming increasingly conscious of it, of my city, as something like a space station. Because (laughs) every unit of food that people consumed there had to be moved in from someplace else. The water was moved there from somewhere else. It didn't exactly belong to us in the most um, biological sense. And um, I, I didn't feel comfortable with that. We moved to southwestern Virginia for a lot of reasons. It's, it's very near where I grew up in Kentucky. We were really coming home. But when we made this move, we were very conscious of how we were going to a place that could sustain us in a different way. And we undertook this project to try to attend to our local food chain. But, you know, you tell the
0: story um, in, in between your story, you tell the story of how we as a culture got to this place that we don't we don't live on a food that is grown around us and that we've even lost our we, we don't even know that.
1: Um. <laughs> yeah, we've we've forgotten even to ask the question, where did our food come from? It. Mm-hmm. it it doesn't even seem to bother us that most of our food may have come from China or Argentina or a combination of the two <laughs> milled together in some third location, that so much of our food travels great distances to reach us using an enormous amount of fossil fuels, while at the same time we're turning our backs on the farmers who may be struggling to survive in our own um, in our own region, we're not doing it on purpose, right. We've we don't even know forgotten what we're doing. how to think about it. We've forgotten even how to ask uh, how to look for what's in season at this moment. I mean, I think it was interesting to me to hear
0: that that this practice of eating fruits and vegetables that were grown in faraway California was originally, you know, a luxury uh, for very rich people, right? That that they might have, I don't know, an orange at their dinner
1: table. Yeah, it was like a a, a party trick mm-hmm. to to produce lettuce in the middle of winter in in the Midwest. Just a handful of people could afford it, mm-hmm. and it was probably considered bizarre by the neighbors who were much more sensible. and to tell you the truth, humans for all of history until right around the time of World War II have eaten locally, a uh, local organic food uh, that was produced sustainably. That's a normal way to eat. And it's kind of funny that in just a couple of generations, we have come so far from that that returning to it is, is, um, is something special that has a name. <laughs> what is that name?: Yeah, eating locally, uh-huh. um, just uh, or locavores were called now. It's funny, when we began this project, there wasn't any name for it, but mm-hmm. well, you know, here is an irony,
0: I would articulate. Um, as you say, you you've written a book about spending one year with your family, doing something that feels astonishing. And, uh and even privileged right mm-hmm. <laughs> um you know like it, 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 it the time that you had the the space in your life the security uh the choice to move to this other home um and yet you're writing about something you're writing about a way of living that as you say is the way human beings lived forever and I I, I suppose most people in the world still live as a matter of survival mm-hmm
1: <laughs> yeah. And so it's 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 pretty funny that in our culture, it's um, very exotic what it, you did. It's, well, it is. I mean, it's 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 so normal what we did. But it, there's also um, there's also a kind of bias in our culture that we're eating organically. And, and this local cuisine thing is elite. It's, it's really returning to um What's normal for humans if we can regain some control over our own um, communities? (laughs) ¶¶
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, the ethics of eating. That's one of the overarching themes of Barbara Kingsolver's book, Animal Vegetable Miracle, A Year of Food Life. Here's a reading from its chapter about
3: the month of July. By mid-month, we were getting a dozen tomatoes a day, that many cucumbers, our first eggplants, and squash in unmentionable quantities. A friend arrived one morning as I was tag-teaming with myself to lug two full bushel baskets of produce into the house. He pronounced a biblical benediction. The harvest is bountiful and the labor's few. I agreed, of course, but the truth is, I still had to go back to the garden that morning to pull about 200 onions, our year's supply. They had bulbed up nicely in the long midsummer days and were now waiting to be tugged out of the ground, cured, and braided into the heavy plates that would hang from our kitchen mantle and infuse our meals all through the winter. I also needed to pull beets that day, pick about a bushel of green beans, and slip paper plates under two dozen ripening melons to protect their undersides from moisture and sow bugs. In another week, we would start harvesting these, along with sweet corn, peppers, and okra. The harvest was bountiful, and the labors were blooming endless.
0: Barbara Kingsolver and her family supplemented what they could grow themselves with organic produce when possible from the farmer's market. She refers often in her book to the hidden costs of cheap supermarket food and fast food. I asked her to explain the basic understanding she's gained of why those costs don't turn up in our grocery bills.
1: Because you're paying for them um, on a different tally, mostly through your taxes, um, the farm bill, which is renegotiated every five to seven years, sets food policy in our country, and it gives billions and billions of dollars of subsidies to mostly producers of commodity crops, uh, wheat, corn, and soybeans that get turned into things like high fructose corn syrup Mm -hmm. and um, um, feedlot grain for cheap hamburgers. So our policy that we vote for, that we ostensibly support uh, through our um, elected legislators, makes this kind of food, makes it cheap. Meanwhile, it's absolutely true that many people have extremely limited food choices in this country, and I do know that. There are large urban areas where people's only uh, grocery option is, is a, a convenience market, but for those of us who do have other choices, who can go to the farmers' market, find local farmers, reward them for bringing in their produce, um, we improve the odds that more people can afford it and that it will expand into other areas. There, are, in in uh, a city near where I live, for example, there's a a, a vegetable. Bookmobile, essentially. Really. It's a it's a a, a farmers market on a on a school bus that drives around in uh, the low income neighborhoods and sells vegetables at at a very reasonable cost. So, um, if we want it, if we support it, these things can change. You obviously went into this with
0: a tremendous amount of um, knowledge and planning you'd always been a gardener um, you knew about farming and and you're a scientist but I wonder um, and you, you 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 write about the year in, in great detail in the book but I, I wonder if you could just uh, say you know what what surprised you the most about that like the experience when you were actually living it
1: I think, What surprised me the most is that we didn't really miss anything. Hmm. We went into it probably thinking too much about what we weren't not going to be able to have. You know, oh, my goodness, no strawberries in January. But when we changed our thinking and started every meal with the question, what do we have? What's in season? What do we have plenty of? Hmm. It became really a long exercise in gratitude. It was so much fun, and it was so reinforcing to the culture of our family. I think in our culture, we we generally lack strong regional traditions of food that tie us to our place and our people, you know, specific food traditions as they have in Italy, for example, or in India or Mexico or... Um, it, we seem to be a little at sea in this country uh, as a result uh, when it comes to food rules, and um, we're behaving as if we're in search of some kind of food Leviticus to save <laughs> us from from the simple right. royal of cheap fats and carbohydrates. I mean, right, right. I, uh, the, honestly, the, yeah. I mean, if you look at the the bookstore shelves, they're crammed with diet books. Yes, <laughs> and I wanted to note this that
0: it, it's right when we when we talk about correcting this knot we're in and uh, Addressing obesity and all of that We talk about replacing bad habits With habits that are good for you (laughs) It's the language of
1: sin It's as if we are afraid of our food Right, Um, Which is reasonable enough Because we don't know it How can we trust it If we don't know what hemisphere it came from But
0: you know that in the arena of food The ethical choice is also the pleasurable choice
1: In this case it is I'm really in favor of throwing out This language of sin and talking about being bad when you're sitting down to a good meal because mm-hmm. the ethical choice of of supporting your local farmer also tastes better. Right. And it does involve cooking, but that's also such a wonderful thing to come home to. I think that the planning of beautiful meals and investing one's heart and time in their preparation is the opposite of self-indulgence. Mhm.
0: And you know that that delight uh, in cooking, the art of it and the pleasure of it comes through so clearly in your book and and right now in your voice as you're talking about it. But for me where what that touches on is another drought in American life <laughs> and that is the drought of time, right? Mhm. Mhm. I mean it sounds to me like you I know, I know you were probably writing, but you were really able to be present uh, to your garden, to your home, to your family, to that to that lifestyle. And uh, that is something that feels unattainable to me. And I think a lot of people who just feel like we're just working and juggling children is, is tricky.
1: Well, you know, I was doing that too. I've, I've been a working mother for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't remember any other way of being. And I'm, I didn't really, you know, I didn't write about writing in the book, but I'm at my desk pretty much eight to five every day, like so many other people. I do have an easy commute. There's no (laughs) doubt. But um, my work life is is profoundly consuming and, and often difficult and frustrating. But it's so interesting to me when I'm in Europe and spend time with my Spanish friends or Italian friends. Um, and they're working people too. They're women who work in offices, are you know, they're editors or are laboratory um, scientists. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they're out of work, they head straight for the market, and they go down to see what fish is has come in, or what what greens do they have now at this season. And even at high powered business lunches with editors in France, this has happened to me so many times. These women in their fashionable. It, it, shoes and business suits will stray from uh post-colonial literature over onto the <laughs> subject of of mushrooms you know and there's no shame in their enthusiasm for cooking they they feel that cooking for their families is a really important part of who they are this i think is at um at the heart of the problem uh, for 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 a lot of us anyway i think i belong to the generation of women who grew up thinking that um, um, walking away from the kitchen was walking away from some kind of slavery. You know, it's how we think about it. Yes,
0: you're right. If we thought of cooking as this great pleasure that we could look forward to at the end of the working day, I suppose that would change it.
1: It, If if we look at it as family time, as entertainment, as... um, uh spiritually enlightening, even you know if we looked at it as a as a destination rather than a rock in the road, yes, I think we would do more of it, and not every day, maybe not um, not on Monday nights, okay, but uh definitely on Saturday mm-hmm.
0: Barbara Kingsolver, speaking about the year she and her family spent eating locally grown and raised food, she described that experience in her nonfiction book, Animal Vegetable Miracle. You know, I think I found one of the most moving chapters of the book uh, when you describe harvesting the meat, as you say, because you're not Mm -hmm. just talking about growing vegetables. um, uh, You also raised turkeys and roosters and killed them. Mm -hmm. And as you say, you know, you tell a story of at dusk sitting down to feast on cold bean salad, sliced tomatoes with basil, blue potato salad and meat that had met this day's dawn by crowing. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) that is a part of... uh, of what we eat, I don't know. Even of just the fact of life and death that mm-hmm. we American consumers are very removed from. Tell me what when you say this is the big difference between talking about harvesting meat uh, and and the way we normally think about the meat. Yeah, we buy. I used
1: to think it was a euphemism to use that word harvest. Mm-hmm. I don't anymore, and it's funny. It's funny just now. I, I reacted a little oddly when you said you raised chickens and then killed them. <laughs> that. That word, if you think about it, the way we use it is a, a murder, a homicide. Yes. Well, we talk about slaughterhouses. Murder. Well, or we say, oops, I killed my African violet. Um, it, it, it suggests some accidental or intentionally mean-spirited act. Um, We're back at sin again, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, we yes. are. Whereas harvesting a rooster is allowing this animal to— Achieve, achieve its final glory if I'm going to eat an animal I, I want its life to have had some dignity um, some some you know poultry joy because I, I do believe mm. there is such a thing turkeys don't want to live to be 100 years old they, they don't <laughs> want to know their grandchildren believe me um, <laughs> they couldn't pick their grandchildren out of a lineup I know this for a fact
0: now In the chapter in your book, Animal, Vegetable, Miracle, where you describe the day in which you harvested the animals, um, news was coming in of Hurricane Katrina, Mm -hmm. and I, I wonder how you experienced and kind of processed the larger implications of those events, perhaps differently because of that experiment you were conducting and living sustainably
1: I think so much all the time about the effects of our consumption, contributing so much to global climate change, which is beginning to pound at our shores and the shores of many other countries. Mm-hmm. we're not we haven't felt the damage yet so much here, but we began to on that weekend, and it really felt like. It was a, such a great sadness because it felt like this, um, this terrible uh, coming home to roost. Um, it seems to me in this country we have yet to assign any moral value to the overconsumption of the world's limited resources. Um, to our like, overconsumption. Yeah. To, mm-hmm. to, um, it, if you can afford it it's okay to use it. Mm -hmm. Uh, That seems to be the only rule. Um, There are many, many paths toward finding a better and more sustainable way to live in the world. Um, Some people do it by giving up meat. I, I did it by giving up bananas. (laughs) Because (laughs) when I think about all those fossil fuels that are burned in a a refrigerated cargo hold to get that stuff to me, that didn't seem cruelty-free to me. Mm -hmm. I wanted to find another way to live that would brighten the prospects of my children's time on this earth. Hmm. I mean,
0: here's something you wrote of of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, You wrote that Annette analysts of current events were mostly looking to blame administrators. Fair enough, but there were also, it seemed, obvious vulnerabilities here. Whole populations depending on everyday long-distance lifelines, supplies of food and water and fuel, and everything else that are acutely centralized. That's what we consider normal life. Now nature had written a hugely abnormal question across the bottom of our map. Say some more to me about what that Abnormal question
1: was. Well, the question is do you think you can keep doing this without paying some kind of a price?
0: Barbara Kingsolver's questions about food are questions many of us are living into in our own contexts and with our particular resources. I've been moved and provoked by the many stories submitted by our listeners about the ethics of eating in their daily lives. And you can read and listen to these, too, at speakingoffaith.org. A barbecue judge in Virginia questions eating meat. An expatriate living in Sweden describes a healthier relationship with food and dieting through living abroad. Lori Eldridge from Concord, New Hampshire, wrote to us... Believing in the stewardship of all creation, I try to choose locally grown foods, farm and ocean. I was raised on Cape Cod in a fishing family, so our meals were often the catch of the day. I now try to use underutilized species so that the well-harvested species, especially in the ocean, have an opportunity to restock. Read these stories from far-flung lives and download an mp3 of this program at speakingoffaith.org. We've also posted an essay by Alice Waters, the famous restaurateur of Chez Panisse and advocate of the slow food movement for several decades. It was, as we learned, an experience of eating bouillabaisse in France in the 1970s that began to influence her shopping habits and seafood selection. In The Last Wild Food, she describes that vivid and life-changing moment. Find that at speakingoffaith.org
3: wake up in the morning in the moonlight gray ¶ We got dirt to break, we got a note to pay ¶ I'm gonna plow, plow to the end of the road ¶ I'm gonna wake up in the morning ¶ Plow to the end of the road
0: ¶ After a short break, more stories behind Barbara Kingsolver's conviction that we can find greater pleasure and influence the grand environmental crises of our time through our family's food lives. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. This program comes to you from American Public Media.
3: My baby's waiting for me, so to the end of the road.
2: Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at fetzer.org and by gather.com, the social network where people can make new friends who share their interests. You can meet people talking about faith at speakingoffaith.gather.com. Wake up in the morning
3: in the moonlight gray, we got dirt to break, we got a note to pay, I'm gonna plow, plow to the end of the road. I'm gonna wake up in the morning and plow to the end of the road
0: welcome back to conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett, today speaking with the wonderful author Barbara Kingsolver on the ethics of eating. I spoke with her in 2007 after she'd published Animal Vegetable Miracle, A Year of Food Life, one of several books that continues to shape our evolving cultural reappraisal of the food we eat. This is an account of a personal adventure, one year in which Kingsolver, her husband, and two daughters lived on what they could raise and grow themselves. They were able to do that by moving from Arizona to a farm in Virginia where they'd long spent their summers. Barbara Kingsolver approached this challenge primarily as a citizen and a mother, though she's written several previous works of fiction and nonfiction that draw on her training as a scientist and her passion for socially responsible literature. Here's an excerpt from Small Wonder, a book of essays Barbara Kingsolver published in the wake of the September 11th terrorist attacks.
3: Something new is upon us, and yet nothing is ever new. We are alive in a fearsome time, and we have been given new things to fear. We've been delivered huge blows but also huge opportunities to reinforce or reinvent our will depending on where we look for honor and how we name our enemies. The easiest thing is to think of returning the blows. But there are other things we must think about as well, other dangers we face. A careless way of sauntering across the earth and breaking open its treasures, a terrible dependency on sucking out the world's best juices for ourselves, these may also be our enemies. The changes we dread most may contain our salvation.
0: Now I'm looking at the sweep of your writing over, say, the last 10 years. Um, It seems to me that, that September 11th also kind of formed the sense of urgency that you have now. Um, you talked then about the prideful wastefulness, our prideful wastefulness as a nation. I think you just described that
1: in more detail. Sometimes I think it's prideful. Sometimes I think it's just clueless. I, I, I mean, no, and and I, it, I mean that to describe myself as much as anyone. We don't have a clue sometimes about how or what we're wasting. Mm-hmm. It's so easy for us to have, for example, foods that were grown on the other side of the world and brought to us without any idea who grew it, who worked for what low wage to harvest it, who had to breathe pesticides in order to put it on a truck. You know, those, those questions... Have uh, there a curtain has been drawn over the whole process, uh, so that we've come to look at our food as a product? Mm -hmm. It isn't, those are moral questions, it's all all a process, and those are moral questions. If we care to draw back the curtain and look, um, it isn't all bad news, I think. The subject of food seems daunting because there are so many different questions, so many different problems, and that's something that really compelled me about writing this book. I love to start with a huge, unanswerable, um, boggling kind of question and see if I can whittle it down into the shape of a really good yarn. You know, I just love to see if I can give it a plot and make you laugh all along the way and maybe make you cry at the end and create something that will invite you in. And then when you're finished and you close the book, um, maybe you'll step out into the world in a slightly different way and ask your own questions and answer the questions in your own way. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, you note
0: this this fact um, of human life that, in a sense, we experience the crises of our time to be completely new and original and uniquely oh, catastrophic, yes. <laughs> right? Um,
1: it's never been, as bad, right, as, it's never as, been as, as bad as it is right this. now. I think it's not true. I mean, certainly the environmental picture is bleaker and scarier now for humans than it's ever been before. But in almost every other way we keep getting it a little more right and i when my kids feel gloomy about the headlines or you know sort of what kind of a mess humans have made of, of their own relations i say you know what when i started first grade the black kids weren't allowed to go to my school they didn't even have a school they had they went to a church up the hill they were our schools were segregated in second grade and we can't even imagine those things Right within now. your lifetime
0: However, I think that that part of the problem now is we know so much. We mm-hmm. see these pictures and these pictures of other of of our own crisis maybe we've helped to cause and other crises and disasters and tragedies uh, and terrible headlines and they come into our living rooms and they come straight into our heads and You know, so there's a sense in which I think that the information we have can also debilitate us. You know, you're saying that we are getting some things right, but we've never known so much about ecological catastrophe as we're learning now. You know, how do you think about that and how people should live with the enormity of this knowledge?
1: Well, I have no idea how they should live. I wouldn't tell anybody else. I know for myself, I need to consider hope to be a renewable option if I run out of it at the end of the day well then when I get up in the morning I put it on with my shoes I don't have another choice because I have kids and when my teenager well she just turned 20 um, when my older daughter sometimes confides in me that she's worried her generation won't be able to fix this big environmental damage I say you know what it's not up to your generation it's up to mine We have a now or never kind of problem on our hands, and it is scary. It is overwhelming right now because we're really getting the bad news. We've had the privilege of ignoring and listening to the bad news. Yeah. We have a tendency to, oh, well, you know, blame anybody, but especially the government and say, well, the government needs to fix this. Well, here's the trouble the government is. Us. We mm-hmm. we have the laws that we allow that we're willing to put up with. We're terrified of sacrifice. It seems we're really afraid of giving up the things that we're accustomed to. This is why I felt that an experiment like ours, um, my family's, in which we really tried to find a sustainable diet for ourselves for one year, was a wonderful exercise to discover that, in fact. We can live with what people would call less. It turned out to be not less, but just different and wonderful. And I think that in order to accept limits um, at, a, at a legal level, sort of imposed at the national level, we are individually going to have to experiment with limits that we impose on ourselves personally. Right, starting with ourselves. Starting Starting with our own little lives. Mm -hmm. Right, starting with our own little lives and um, discovering that we can live in a different way. I think this is incredibly empowering and it allows us to take the next step of, um, as a community, saying, yes, we will um, give up some things in order to make the world a cleaner Um, survivable place.
0: It seems to me that in your work, one thing you offer as an antidote, if you will, to despair is simply perspective. You know, you have this sentence, uh, wildness puts us in our place. And, you know, with that in mind, my favorite passage in The Poisonwood Bible, which is your novel about a missionary family in post-colonial Africa, is where Ada Price, do you, you say her name like that, Ada? hmm Okay. Well, she she's mm-hmm. raised there and then um, becomes a scientist and goes back to Africa. Mm-hmm. And there's this section, I'm going to just read a little bit of it, uh, where she is is looking at the natural world. In Africa, she says, As a teenager reading African parasitology books in the medical library, I was boggled by the array of creatures equipped to take root upon a human body. I'm boggled still, but with a finer appreciation in the partnership. Back then, I was still a bit appalled that God would set down the barefoot boy and girl dollies into an Eden where presumably he had just turned loose elephantiasis and microbes that eat the human cornea. Now I understand god is not just rooting for the dollies.
1: <laughs> I think that's true. We we think we're so smart, we humans. You know, we're just top-heavy hominids walking around in shoes, thinking we thinking we own the place. And then what do you know? We discover that we are animals, indeed subject to the same biological laws as, uh, as everything else, um, subject to the same physics. Yep, gravity still applies to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we trip, we're going to fall down. I happen to think it's also a wonderful place to be as a creature among creatures. I think one of the most glorious things about um, doing something as simple as going to the farmer's market or going to a you pick operation going to visit a farm and picking your own food is to realize that it's a really wonderful thing to be an animal living in a habitat being a part of a food chain there's this enormous comfort and belonging to a cycle and to see that hmm. food isn't a product but a process this terror of the unknown becomes much more manageable when we Except that uh, yes, we are our biology. We really are what we eat. And um, it it actually really tastes good.
0: Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, Barbara Kingsolver on the ethics of eating. Here's a passage from the final chapter of her book, Animal, Vegetable, Miracle, as she reflects on the trade-offs of her family's year of eating locally in terms of consumption, land, and cost.
3: Altered routines were really the heart of what we'd gained. We'd learned that many aisles of our supermarket offered us nothing local, so we didn't even push our carts down those. Frozen foods, canned goods, soft drinks, yes, that's a whole aisle. Just grab the Virginia dairy products and organic flour and get out was our motto before you start coveting thy neighbor's goods. The biggest shock of our year came when we added up the tab. We'd fed ourselves organically and pretty splendidly, we thought, on about 50 cents per family member per meal, probably less than I spent in the years when I qualified for food stamps. Of course, I now had the luxury of land for growing food to supplement our purchases, but it wasn't a lot of land. 3,524 square feet of tilled beds gave us all our produce. That's a 40-by-22-foot spread per person. Without rationing, skipping a meal buying a corn-fed midwestern burger or breaking our vows of exclusivity with local produce we lived inside our own territory for one good year of food life
0: you know i'm i'm comforted you do confess somewhere that that like every other adult you know or most other adults you know you you do um have your own worries and that you you, write, you have a tendency to feel like a jerk for falling short of absolute conversion. I'm comforted. <laughs> I, I think your book um, kind of sets up a model that feels daunting to me as a reader and that might feel daunting to others.
1: Are, oh, are you having I'm, that reaction I'm or sorry. experience? Well, no, I, I didn't. We didn't really. It wasn't that hard, and we didn't strive for any kind of purity. And mm-hmm. it's funny that before People read the book. They say, "Oh, well, weren't you tempted to cheat?" And, "Oh, what are you eating on book tour?" And you know, stuff like that. Well, there is no cheating. This wasn't. Um, this wasn't uh, an exercise in purity. We we decided to do things like get fair trade coffee. We um, we did get some things from outside of our community because we wanted a happy life. We thought if we can keep 95% of our food dollars inside our own community, how wonderful would that be? It's and so, and we didn't want to tell a story that other people would look at and say, Oh, how heroic they were. I could never do that. I didn't really, of course. It, imagine anybody would else do exactly what we did. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're sort of crazy. We, we, we have a huge garden. And frankly, other gardeners are crazy too. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's I think it's in our DNA. But um, on the contrary, we wanted to do something that really seemed doable in some part. So it surprises me that I very frequently encounter people sort of beating themselves up, saying, oh, well, I have to have, you know, at least sometimes raspberries in January. Well, that's fine, as long as we can begin to understand that it's an indulgence to ask someone right. to well, fly I, for me, raspberries to us in an airplane. You, you know. know, that's not what
0: feels hard to me. And I, I think like a lot of people, I've, I'm becoming gradually just more conscious of this. and. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, not desiring raspberries out of season or peaches mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. February—it's it, rather in fact, horrible. They're mushy, right? It, it's more the incredible dedication. You know, the, the totality of the effort you made.
1: Well, in part. Um, like give me an example because I I mean I didn't think we were that dedicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, just that uh, you really handed your lives over to this. Well, we really didn't. I only wrote about the I mean of the million things that happened to us in that year, most of them didn't go into the book, mm-hmm. you know. Our dog died, for example, Um, or, you know, and I I broke my leg. You know, all all kinds of things happened that I didn't write about because, because, for one thing, they're not. Um, they belong to us, but mainly they're not relevant. Your daughter went away to college. That's also something that she kind of tucks into as almost as an aside. Uh Right. And frankly, that was a huge um, component of our emotional landscape. But this isn't really a memoir. Mm -hmm. This is a story about finding a certain path home. And so as a writer... I'm very disciplined about looking at the landscape of facts and picking out uh, the ones that really move the story forward. (laughs) All right. Well, no, and I I get
0: that. But I I do think there is something edifying in that. I mean, what you're saying is you you did this. uh, I mean, I really do think this was an act of, of discipline and an attempt to look at the ethics and morality of food as well as, you know, this great, the great irony we talked about as well that when you, that the ethical thing to do with food is also pleasurable. Um, But you're also saying that life went
1: on and life had its pitfalls and uh, foibles. Sure it did. Mm -hmm. Sure it did. And um, what we were really looking for without knowing this is a paradigm shift. And That always takes discipline in the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's just like taking a marriage vow or something. You know, in the beginning you stand up in front of, you know, God and everybody and you say, forsaking all others. And you talk about how everything's going to change. And at first it might feel um, rather strained and artificial. Ultimately, it simply becomes your life. And you don't sit around thinking, about, oh, well, when I was single, you know, I didn't have to pick up my shoes or whatever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's how it was. We kind of made these vows. We are going to look really hard for a different way to eat. And so that meant on the first Saturday of the farmer's market, even though it was snowing, it was a horrible day outside. I I really would like to have just curled up with a book. But we said, well, no, we're going to do this thing. And there's almost nothing in the pantry, so we have to do it. That was forced, and it was so rewarding. We found so much more there than we expected. And that's the day, right away, that I understood that sometimes you have to push yourself into a new way of thinking to get to a place where you want to be that's very comfortable, that doesn't even feel like work. Hmm. It's just a shift, you know, momentum. Um, And our habits can be enormous. And sometimes it just takes some sort of a formal vow uh, to get us from one kind of thinking into another. Mm. And then it's easy. I'm telling you, it wasn't that hard. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm listening.
0: Barbara Kingsolver's book is Animal Vegetable Miracle, A Year of Food Life. She's the author of many other works of fiction and nonfiction and a recipient of a National Humanities Medal. She lives with her family on a farm in southwestern Virginia. Many of us are asking questions about the food we eat. Where does it come from? Is it nourishing in body and in spirit? Are my choices helping others? We've been gathering stories and creating a community narrative of deeper meanings of relationship with the people who grow our food and the land it's grown on. You can add to this illustrated narrative yourself. Look for the Share Your Story link on our homepage, speakingoffaith.org. I also recommend you check a recent post on SOF Observed, our staff blog, about a project in Maine called Meet Your Farmer. These are beautiful films that share the perspectives of eight family farmers, and they echo sentiments many of us recognize inside ourselves. Also, don't forget, all of our shows and my unedited interviews, including this conversation with Barbara Kingsolver, are always available for free. Download the MP3s on our website, podcast, and email update. Find all those links at speakingoffaith.org. This program is produced by Colleen Sheck, Chris Hegel, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Shuba Bala. Trent Gillis is our senior editor. Kate Moose is managing producer. And I'm Krista Tippett.
2: Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karin Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org. Additional support comes from the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. Speaking of Faith is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation.
0: Alan Rabinowitz. A profound stutter as a child left him virtually unable to communicate and to prefer animals to people. He became a wildlife biologist and made his name as an explorer in some of the world's last wild places. He has extraordinary insights into the animal-human bond, the evolving science of wildlife conservation, and what it means to be human. Please join us.
3: American Public Media.